It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here once again in the front row. And as always, behind the scenes, it's J.R. Quitman, our director, creator, producer, extraordinaire for us here. I want to thank you, as always, for continuing to watch and listen to our shows. Some great guests, great conversations. Today is no different. We're up to episode number 37. And for that, it is Bill Curry. Extraordinary life in football. College football played at Georgia Tech for the Hall of Fame coach Bobby Dodd. Then in the NFL, all he did was play for Vince Lombardi and Don Shula. He was a center for the Packers and the Colts, snapping to Bart Starr and to Johnny Unitas. He tells us all those stories, those memories of those teams and those teammates, and then about his college coaching career as well, back at his alma mater as a head coach, coach at Alabama and Kentucky, and then another light for him as a broadcaster at ESPN as well, pairing up with Mike Golick Sr., one of our previous guests. Great stories, incredible life lived by Bill Curry. He is our guest, episode number 37 of In the Front Row. Again, uh, we appreciate you joining us here today. And, and you know, I thought about you because we interviewed Mike Golick a couple of weeks ago and, and you came up in a discussion because you guys worked together quite a bit at ESPN. And, and he said that other than his dad, you're the guy he respects the most. To hear something like that from somebody like Mike Golick Sr., what, what does that tell you about, you know, maybe the impact that you've had on people in your life? Well, it's first, it's surprising and it's very gratifying. Um, and you don't know things like that unless somebody tells you. But um, Mike and I had an instant rapport. Uh, <clears throat> we did it in the old locker room way by making fun of each other on the air. And uh, I could never match his wit. But uh, we also uh, connected off the field at meals and at meetings, uh, meetings about the ball games. And then I think the thing that um, that helped us bond the most, it's an old football thing. It happens, it really happens with a, a lot of guys that are conscientious and that's watching film. And we'd sit there and study and study, uh, trying to get ready for an ESPN game with two really good teams and two, a bunch of fast people where you things were gonna happen quickly. And we wanted to understand how the coaches thought. And we shared so many ideas that we started sharing things about our family and our faith and our backgrounds. And I think that's that's how the, the, the brother thing happened. But he was every bit as influential on me in a positive way as uh, I was on him. Well, let's talk about uh, your background here a little bit. And uh, you're a Georgia guy. You, you grew up in Georgia playing sports. At what point in your life did football become the sport for you? And, you know, and obviously something that led to, to greater things in your life. When I wasn't good enough at any of the others, that's when, <laughs> that's when that happened. I only had two goals in life when I was 12 years old in College Park, Georgia. I wanted to marry Carolyn Newton, who was the most beautiful girl in the world and the smartest kid in College Park, Georgia. And my folks thought that was a very good idea. Uh, Carolyn did not. She didn't. She wasn't uh, interested at the time. But I was persistent, and um, we'll celebrate our 60th anniversary this year. Wow! Carolyn, so that part worked. 
but my other goal was to pitch for the New York Yankees. And, and only one thing kept me out of the majors in baseball. Talent. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> if I could have pitched for the Yankees, I would have done that. But I also loved basketball and I was on a, a great high school basketball team. We won the state championship, uh, but I was miles away from being college material and really football is the sport that um, was the dominant social theme in our culture. First of all, if you want to get a date at College Park High School, it was important that you have a letter jacket. At least that's what I thought in my immature mind. And it had to be a football letter jacket. And you had to play those games on Friday night so the cheerleaders could get out there and jump up and down and do their thing and the families could come and watch you. And uh, I didn't like it at all. It was too hard. Uh, they actually forced us to run into each other and that caused all kind of trauma to my short, fat, lazy body. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't interested in hitting anybody at all, but uh, I had some great friends on the team who said, come on, Curry, we're going to teach you. We're going, we're going to teach you how to hit. And, um, Gradually, I, I came to uh, love the game and, and to being a part of a huddle, being a part of a team. Um, there are a lot of other great team sports, but um, football, I believe, is the best one, even though it is dangerous and we have problems. I know all that. But uh, if you play on a good football team, then that means you have bonded with a bunch of guys. And it doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter whether they have an accent or not. It doesn't all that. It just matters that this is your teammate. You love him. And when you get busted in the mouth, that blood's the same color from everybody. And that sweat smells the same on everybody. <laughs> and we figure out that we got a lot more in common than we have that separate us. So, I had the privilege of playing on a bunch of great teams. So that's a long-winded answer, but an important, it's an important subject. Yeah, we're going to get into some of the teams here. And it started in college at Georgia Tech. So you decide to more or less stay at home and you play for Bobby Dodd, you know, outstanding coach in his own right. Uh, what was that experience like? You're there from uh, 61 to 64 playing for the Yellow Jackets. Well, I had grown up a, a Bulldog. My dad was a Georgia guy. In fact, he was born in, in Athens on the campus of the university and graduated from the university. <clears throat> he was also a hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor at Fort Benning in World War II when I came along. So <laughs> he was a tough customer, a uh, wonderful dad. Um, but he didn't make me go to Georgia. And I figured out quickly that Georgia Tech was the closest campus to Agnes Scott College. And guess who was going to be at Agnes Scott College? <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn Newton. Um, so for some of the wrong reasons, I went to Georgia Tech. But, but one of the right reasons was Bobby Dodd. Bobby Dodd had the reputation and quite justifiable that he made his guys go to every single class. We had Saturday morning classes in those days. You might have. You might have uh, calculus and math, another form of math or science on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock and nine o'clock and play against Alabama at two o'clock, same day. And you better be in those classes. You better be there. Or it was, it was not pleasant. So he made sure we all went to class. He never got his degree. 
And he said, he said every year now, man, I'm a third quarter sophomore at the University of Tennessee. I'm 53 years old or whatever it was. He said, that's not going to happen to you. You're going to have a diploma because you're going to sit on the front row, take notes, and you're going to you're going to get a degree from one of the great schools in the world. And that's what happened with most of us. It wasn't really because we wanted to. It was because we could not bear the thought of displeasing him. Yeah, those coaches successful for many reasons, as you mentioned right there. Go, go to the classes, get your degree. Uh, during your playing career, though, uh, really good playing career. You're a captain, uh, senior year as well. What do you take away from your, your playing days that eventually led you to the NFL? Uh, the best thing that happened in my playing days was I was taught the necessity of perseverance. I started my first game for Georgia Tech in the fourth game of my fourth year. It took me so long to, I was very slow maturing physically and emotionally really. Um, so it took me a long time to grow up and we didn't have uh, a sophisticated strength program. My father was a, a barbell instructor and I should have paid attention to him, but I didn't. I, I, I rebelled against that. That was stupid, but that was a teenage boy making a ba another bad decisions. I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't grown up enough. So, and, and, and I actually went to a coach Carol and I got married our, our junior year and uh, I wasn't playing. We went to a bowl game and my jersey was clean at the end of the day. I'll never forget that. So I was embarrassed. My bride sat in the stands and watched me stand on the sidelines. And I made up my mind then that wasn't going to happen again. So I went to one of the coaches and said, well, what do I have to do to play coach? He said, it doesn't matter what you do, Bill, you're not good enough and you're never going to play. And I'm sorry. So get your education and help us recruit and be a nice boy. And thank you. Have a good day. Well, that just crushed me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, at the same time, another coach who named John Robert Bell, John Robert Bell was an assistant offensive line coach. He came to my locker put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eye, and he said, Bill, I know you can play. Why don't you go, you and I go down to the practice field early and let's work on your footwork. And uh, I'll get you a job this summer and I'll work you out during the summer, which he did, and uh, changed my life. I played 12 more years, <laughs> two at Georgia Tech and a, a 10 in the NFL. And I don't think it would have happened without that great assistant coach. So we all need somebody to come along at those key moments to say, hey, you can do this. And then to show us how, give us the way. And John Robert Bell did that for me. So it, and at the same time, um, getting married and having a responsibility made me a better student. So uh, and the fact that Carolyn wouldn't allow me to watch television when I was supposed to be studying, um, all those things work together. And it was, it turned out to be a wonderful result. Yeah. As you said, the, the time at Georgia tech and then 10 years in the NFL, which started in 64, you drafted actually twice, right? You drafted by the Packers in the NFL and also by the Raiders of the AFL. How did that come about? And, and, and what made your decision, the Packers over the Raiders? Sure enough, the Green Bay Packers and the Oakland Raiders had drafted us <laughs> Carolyn, I always say us and we. And um, to our amazement, the Packers showed up after my senior season and flew us to Dallas uh, on a Sunday morning early. 
we were taken to the uh, Cotton Bowl where the Packers were playing the Cowboys. I mean, this is like something out of a dream. We were seated with Marie Lombardi on the 50-yard line watching the NFL, all these all-stars out there on both teams running around. And in the fourth quarter, um, somebody came and got me, took me down on the sideline. So I'm standing next to Vince Lombardi as the Packers finish off the Cowboys. And he says, let's go to the locker room. So here I am. And, and I mean, I don't have an agent. I don't have an attorney. I don't know anything at all about anything. <laughs> and we're walking across the Cotton Bowl. And Vince Lombardi turns to me and said, Bill, would you like to play for the Green Bay Packers? And without thinking at all, I said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, I mean, I made a commitment before I ever <laughs> thought about a number. And then, and then when it came time to think about numbers, I didn't have a clue what to do on that either. So it was it was like something out of a, um, a fairy tale, the way it started. Yeah, Vince Lombardi wants you to play for him. You're not going to say no, right? I mean, so, so you, you know about this guy. You know about his his coaching. How, how difficult of a coach was he? Did, how much did he drive you as a player? He drove us unmercifully, but football is an unmerciful game. And I didn't understand it. I wasn't, again, I, I wasn't a fast maturing person. Uh, thank goodness I married a person who did mature quickly and stayed right by my side through all these things. But Lombardi, sitting and watching a film with Lombardi of your own performance was one of the most devastating things any of us went through. And it applied to everybody. I mean, he would rip you up one side and down the other verbally. And then when you thought you might either become aggressive or well, all those things you think of when you're a crazy <laughs> young person, then he would sidle up next to you on the practice field and say, um, you look pretty good today, Bill. And then you'd run through a wall for him. So he had this incredible culture and he had us in the palm of his hands and we would do anything for him. That's the bottom line. As a rookie, you guys win the championship. And then in 66, you're the starting center in Super Bowl one. You're there at the very beginning of the Super Bowl playing for Vince Lombardi. I mean, what kind of experience was that? Obviously, the Super Bowl one, a little bit different than it is these days with the, you know, all the, the sideshows and everything else that's part of it. But what was it like being on that team and winning those championships? It was surreal. It really was. The whole thing was surreal for a kid from College Park, Georgia. Um, traveling in those circles and, and going through the things we went through to get to the Super Bowl and then getting there and not knowing anything about our opponents. Um, it, it really, and you say there were no, compared to today's world, it's true. There were no, the distractions were nothing like they are now, but there were still, I mean, we run out on the field. I mean, I was a trumpet player in the high school band and there's Al Hurt playing his, trumpet one of the most famous human beings on earth and there were guys flying around with those little rockets on their back i don't know what that didn't look safe to me but them they were zooming around the stadium at the coliseum and it really felt like hollywood and then the crowd showed up and they didn't come they didn't feel half of the coliseum so and then it felt like a saturday afternoon scrimmage in baltimore uh, so i i um it was almost impossible to describe and coach Lombardi was really uptight more than ever 
because he was getting pressure from the NFL. Vince, you have to win this game. So it was a it was a weird scene. Yeah, it was uh, NFL versus AFL. You, you took on the Chiefs. You beat the Chiefs thirty-five to ten. Uh, and again, not only the starting center on this team, but your quarterback is a pretty good quarterback in, in Bart Starr as well. What was that relationship like for for you two guys in the playing field? It was unbelievable. I mean, it, it, it's when I tell stories like this. I expect it. It's hard for people to believe. But the day I reported to the Green Bay Packers, Bart Starr walked with me to dinner. I didn't even know he was. I, I just sensed that somebody was walking by my side. St. Norbert College in uh, West Dakota, Wisconsin. That was like Mars to me. I had ne- I'd never been out of the I never been out of the state of Georgia, to, uh, unless it was to go to the beach in Florida, and this was not Florida. Um, this was not Kansas. <laughs> this was Wisconsin. And this somebody's walking by my side. And I turned as Bart Starr. And I said, oh, Mr. Starr. He said, oh, don't call me that, Mr. Stuff. Just call me Bart. And I said, Bart, it's so nice to meet you. He said, um, Bill, I don't know what your faith is, but we have a great Methodist preacher. And if you'd like to go to church with Cherry and me tomorrow, and then come to Sunday dinner, we'd love to have you. That's how he greeted a 20th round draft choice. And he never left my side the rest of his life. He became one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And he did so many wonderful things, including hire me to um, have my first um, job as an NFL coach, which led directly to the head coaching job at Georgia Tech. Uh, Just the best friend imaginable and yes a great player five world championships in seven years nobody's going to match that one so from a teammate to you know working for him did that relationship change at all during that time when you became the offensive line coach uh, with the Packers and he was the head coach oh of course it changed (laughs) if we weren't blocking anybody he was he was a Bart Bart under little bit different circumstances would have been a great NFL coach. He had all the ingredients, the same as he did as a quarterback. But in the NFL, you you got small numbers and you get the wrong people hurt, especially on defense, and that's what happened to us. And you have a couple of losing seasons, you're going to get fired. And that's what happened to Bart. That just made me sick. and it made, but it also made him even more sensitive as a friend. So when I had problems later in my career, he just showed up at my office. And I said, what are you doing here? Do you, you're here for business? I mean, I was in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, he lived in Birmingham. He said, no, no business. And I said, well, wh- wh- why are you here? He said, I'm going to spend the day with you. It was a very tough time for me. He knew that. And that is a teammate. That is a friend. Yeah, as you said, the, the different guys that you meet in the huddle become your friends for a lifetime, and certainly Bart Starr was, was one of those guys. Back to your playing days here because, again, success with Green Bay, but then the Saints have their expansion draft. You're unprotected. You go to New Orleans, didn't play there, and quickly you go to Baltimore. and You play yeah. for another pretty good coach in Don Shula, center for another good quarterback in Johnny Unitas. What was that all like, you know, to, to – be part of that draft, not be protected by the, the Packers, and maybe for a time not knowing exactly where you were going. 
Well, I got all upset when I was put on the expansion list, but uh, we had two centers. Ken Bowman is the other one. Uh, I had to leave the Super Bowl with an injury. Uh, that was the only game all year that I did that I left with an injury. Um, and I don't know how all that figured in Coach Lombardi's thinking, but he put us both on the expansion list, as he told me when he called. And I was claimed by the Saints, and I saw that as an insult. Um, I should not have, but I did. And uh, a couple of weeks later, when I got a phone call, some guy claiming to be Don Shula, I thought it was one of my buddies screwing around with me. So I almost said something smart. But I bit my tongue and said, okay, Coach Shula, what, what's up? <laughs> it was Don Shula. <laughs> he said, look, Bill, I know you've been a starter, but Coach Dodd, one of Coach Dodd's many strengths is he required all of us to learn to play all special teams really well. And I could run a little bit so I could cover kickoffs and be a wedge buster. I was a long snapper, and I could play on punt returns and kickoff returns, and I loved doing all that because we all were required at Tech to learn those skills. Coach Dodd was a master of the kicking game. Well, Shula had seen that on film. He said, Bill, if I trade for you, I know you've been a starter, but would you be satisfied to play for us just on special teams? That's why I want you. I'm just telling you the truth. And my answer was, Coach, I would walk to Baltimore to play for you. Yes, please. And that's what happened. So I had the privilege of playing for three of the greatest coaches that ever lived. Yeah, as you said, college Bobby Dodd, Vince Lombardi – now Don Shula, 67 to 72, you're there with the Colts. You guys win the, the Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl five. What made that team so special? And, and do you compare it at all to your, your Super Bowl championship team with Green Bay? How do they compare to each other? Well, first of all, let me tell you that the 68 team was the best team. The Colts 68 team, we were 15 and one going into the Super Bowl. We had lost one game, and it was to Cleveland. We had just beaten Cleveland in Cleveland for the NFL title, 34 to nothing. So now we all we got to do is beat the Jets, and we're going to be one of the greatest teams of all time. Well, we didn't beat the Jets. They beat us, and they deserved to win. Um, too bad. In, in America, if you don't win the big one, the only thing anybody remembers is you're a loser. So people forget that, about that 68 team. That was a great team. Um in 70, we were a patchwork team, especially on offense. We had injuries all year. We had times when the offensive line, we got sacked by the Chiefs 10 times in September. And our head coach fired our offensive line coach, hired a high school coach to come in and take over the offensive line. And lo and behold, we scramble and scratch. We had a great defense, great de led by Mike Curtis, Ray May, Ted Hendricks, Bubba Smith, and others. And we just fought our way with a kicking game and defense into the Super Bowl and then played another poor game on offense against the Cowboys, but won the game. So uh, that was a team that was a patchwork, scratch, bite, kick, do whatever we had to. Billy Ray Smith, our defensive tackle, said one thing for sure. If we get to the Super Bowl, we're going to win because the other team's going to be laughing so hard when we run on the field. <laughs> they won't be able to play. Well, that wasn't quite true, but we did manage to win. Well, you mentioned guarantees there, and you, you go back to the, the loss of the Jets, 16-7. to 7. It was Joe Namath making that, that guarantee. As a player on the opposite side, what did you guys make of all that? 
Well, a lot of people made guarantees that they were going to beat us that year, but they didn't. <laughs> the thing with Joe is he did it. I mean, and, and um, he called it a very good game. He's the only most valuable player in Super Bowl history as a quarterback who did not throw a pass in the fourth quarter. He didn't have to. They were able to uh, maintain the ball against us, and nobody else had done that all year. Uh, we had turnovers. They did not. We missed field goals. They did not. Um, we got beat. I mean, if, if you're playing against a good team, you, you can't turn it over, and you got to take advantage of your opportunities. We had plenty of opportunities early, but we didn't capitalize. So Joe ended up deserving to win the game. So great success there again, Baltimore until 72, 73. You're, you're traded to Houston, and Merlin Olson, you know, maybe more people know him as an actor than a football player, but – He's a guy that you had a leg injury because of him. And, and what did that do to your career? How did you know that lead to, to maybe the end of your playing career after you know 10 years in the NFL? <laughs> it, was, it was devastating. Um, Merlin was, for people who think of him as an actor, just keep this in mind. He went to 14 Pro Bowls in a row. Think about that. He may be the greatest defensive tackle of all time. He's certainly in the top two or three. <clears throat> and um, we were friends off the field even then. We became good friends the next year because I, I finished my career with the Rams, which was Merlin's team. But sure enough, he's the one that applied the blow. It was completely legal. I was trying to uh, block on him, and my knee got caught, and it, it exploded. It was just a mess. And um, – so what, what motivated me, <laughs> Merlin also, I got to the Rams and I was practicing against Merlin. And I said, what do you think I need to work on, Merlin? He said, retirement. <laughs> <laughs> he was a thoughtful, scholarly guy and a, and a dear friend. And I miss him. I, I just, uh, guys like that are unique and special. Yeah, not just great athletes that, that you've had a chance to, to play with, but it seems like great people they've gone on to great things beyond their their you're right like, that's exactly. as you have as well well thank you yes they have also during your time with the coach you were the, the president of the nfl players association right so uh and i know you and john mack you were doing some great things there what was that experience like for you and and maybe how did you know the, the life lessons of of the coaches that you had play in in the role that you had with that well, my NFL life lessons were prompted more by players even than those great coaches. Uh, with the Packers, and when, when I walked in that locker room and looked around, Coach Lombardi's greatest asset, and he doesn't get credit for this, but he would not tolerate racism. And there were a bunch of clubs in the NFL that practiced racism and bragged about it. They didn't have any African-American players or they only had a couple. And they thought that was cool. Coach Lombardi only wanted he only, he wanted two things: can you play football, and are you a decent guy? That's all he cared about. He didn't care what color your skin was. So we had a lot of African American players, and I thought they would hear my Southern accent and reject me. That they did just the opposite. Willie Davis, Herb Adderley, but really led by Willie, Elijah Pitts, Lionel Aldridge. Those guys embraced me. They taught me how to how to talk what to say, what not to say when you're among the brothers, because I didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, and they, they 
the fact that they loved me when I didn't even understand them changed my life completely. And I've tried to take that with me to every team I ever coached. So my real lessons in, in humanity and in dealing with people that are different from me came more from the players than the coaches. Although the coaches had to be the kind of people that would not tolerate racism. And Shula was the same way. In both cases, it only mattered that, that you could play and that you were a good person. And when I got to the uh, Colts, John Mackey and Sylvia, his wife, just embraced Carolyn and me, and God rest his soul. John's not with us anymore, but Sylvia is still serving on the board of my wife's foundation, Women Alone Together, and still comes to Atlanta and stays with us. And those relationships are among the most important ever in our lives. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing to hear that again, you know, were you having those tough discussions and conversations again, being, being a white guy, you know, trying to, to, you know, fit in, in a sense and, and just learn from them. What was that going on during that time with, you know, you oh, as a player with those black players? Oh yeah. I mean, they would, they were so great. I could tell a hundred of them, but I don't want to embarrass any of the guys, but I mean, I would say the wrong thing. And instead of slapping me in the mouth or walking away from me or blindsiding me at practice, they would sit there and say, Bill, don't say that. Say this. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what those were. They weren't the real bad ones, but they were bad enough. They were, they were things we thought were clever and they weren't they're not clever. Those old jokes, those racist jokes that people think are funny. That's the beginning of hatred and vitriol and some of this nonsense, this killing that we're seeing, that's the stuff that gets that started in a little fellow's mind. And God help us, sometimes that little fellow goes and picks up a rifle. So, I mean, I was just educated by some of the great human beings ever. And that's why we had great teams, those great, those leaders. I'm sure you had to have some teammates though that, that maybe didn't follow along other white teammates that that racism was there was that tough to deal with again as you're trying to educate yourself and learn was it difficult to have you know teammates like that around at times <laughs> they weren't around long if you were a racist if you said one racist sentence in lombardi's locker room you were on the next greyhound out of town and that became very clear to everybody uh, it never came up in baltimore i, I, I just think baltimore because of people like Lenny Moore and Jim Parker, they had had Hall of Fame African-American players for years. So I think that, that the possibility of racism had been settled long since. Uh, that, that was not the case in Green Bay because when Lombardi got to Green Bay in 1959, he had one African-American player, Emlyn Tunnell. By the time I got there in 65, he had 10 African-American players on a 40-man roster. Um, that's intentional. That's getting the job done the right way with diversity. It also, nobody could beat us. I noticed that quickly. We didn't lose any games to speak of. Uh, we just had great players and the guy knew what he was doing. Shula, same thing, but Shula inherited a more, I think, mature cultural with Mackey and Lenny Moore and Jim Parker and guys like that. They were just such powerful leaders that uh, the team just blended and, and we were hard to beat every year. 
Yeah, sir, certainly, again, some of the, the greatest names that you're mentioning there, guys that are in the Hall of Fame and, and some that should be as well. Uh, obviously, you know, your career comes to an end. You did eventually go into coaching, but was that on your mind? Did you think you were going to be a coach, having, you know, <laughs> learned from, again, some of the best in college and, and in uh, professional sports? I went to Coach Dodd after my senior year, and I said, um, I want to be a football coach. He said, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. That is the dumbest damn thing I've ever heard. I want you to, coaching is not a good profession. There are only about three good jobs. I've got one of them and I'm not going anywhere. I want you to go run an airline or something, Curry. Get out of my office. You've got a degree from Georgia Tech. You don't need to be coaching football. Get out of here. I will say this though. If you insist on this madness, you come back and see me in 10 years. And if you still think you want to coach, then I'll help you. Well, that's exactly what happened. Neither one of us thought I would play in the NFL, but I did for 10 years. And sure enough, I walked back in his office a decade later and I said, I'm back. And he said, you are crazy. Okay, I'll help you. <laughs> Coach Dodd helped me get a job with Pepper Rogers and Pepper was kind enough to hire me uh, as his offensive line coach. And one year later, Bart hired me to come back to Green Bay and be his O-line coach. Uh, and I'm eternally grateful to all of those people, all those guys. And then you get your chance to, to be a head coach yourself in 1980 at your alma mater with Georgia Tech. Uh, 80 to 86 was your, your time there. You're talking about so many surreal moments. That had to be surreal as well to get back to your alma mater and to be the head coach. What was that like? Well, it was beautiful and terrible. Um, what does that mean? I was at my school. Um, I owe everything I've got to Georgia Tech. Uh, I was forced. If you if you make it through Georgia Tech, and we don't, you'll notice Tech people don't say I graduated. We say I got out. <laughs> we escaped. We got out. It's the hardest thing I've ever done is to walk up that hill to those calculus and physics classes because I had been a lazy high school student. Thank goodness we got married when I was a junior and I was living with a scholar who actually sat me down and Carolyn had a lot to do with me becoming a reasonable student before I left Georgia Tech. But I knew what Georgia Tech stands for. Anybody that gets out of that place, you know two things about us. We know how to think and we know how to work because you don't survive if you can't do those two things. Oh, and you got to show up. You got to show up for every class. You got to learn to take notes and, and follow the notes and, be able to replicate ideas and thoughts on paper the very next day or now on a computer, I suppose. So that experience was was mind boggling and going back to be the coach and having Coach Dodd there. I called him and said, would you come and critique me? He said, are you sure you want that? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. He ripped me on Monday mornings up one side and down. I learned how to be a head coach from the master. Who was, he had 44 mistakes I made in one game. He had a ye yellow legal pad, and it was full. And and, and uh, three of them, you could, I could argue, 41 of them, he was flat out right. <laughs> and so that's fortunate. I had a chance to learn from one of the great, great minds ever. Yeah, you play for a great mind, and then to have that guy come back and, and help you out is incredible. Um, so, again, you're there for, for until 86, ACC Coach of the Year. You move on to Alabama. What was that transition like? Because Alabama, you know, you're seeing it now where it is. 
but obviously at that time it's uh, it's still a, a big name a big name school and you take over what was that job like for you it was controversial because tech and alabama had had a big falling out and i'm not going to get into all that that had happened really in 1961 if you can believe it and the series had been discontinued ironically the year after I finished my NFL career and I was scouting for the Green Bay Packers, I was in Tuscaloosa and Coach Bryant and Coach Bryant and I had become friends. That's another long story I won't bore you with. But he called me up in the tower. Well, nobody goes up in that tower when Coach Bryant's there except Coach Bryant. And so I was nervous about that, but I clambered up the spiral staircase and the great man hemmed and hawed, and I knew he wanted to talk about something. Finally, he said, um, you ever talk to Dodd? Because they had been very good friends before the controversy. I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, i tell you what you do. You go back and you call Dodd and tell him we're too old to be feuding. And, and, and I'll sponsor Georgia Tech back into the SEC. Georgia Tech had dropped out of the Southeastern Conference while I was a player there. So I did what he instructed. I, I hurried home and I called Coach Dodd and Coach Dodd said, well, they won't ever let us back in the, in the SEC. But Paul is right. He called him Paul. We shouldn't be feuding and I'll call him. So they got back together. Now, here's the ultimate irony. They got to be friends again. They reestablished the Georgia Tech Alabama series. Five years later, Guess who the brand new head coach is at the Georgia Institute of Technology? And guess who our opponent is? In Birmingham, we played Bear Bryant, the Alabama Crimson Tide, ranked number one in the nation in Birmingham, the very first game of my head coaching career. How's that, How's that for an eye opener? So, so you helped bring the rivalry back together. And then what happened? Tell us about that game. Oh, it was, it was a nightmare. Um, it was about a thousand degrees on the turf. Uh, Alabama can be very, very warm. <clears throat> uh, Carolyn was sitting in the stands. She said uh, people were ambulances were coming and they were carrying people out of the stands from heat prostration during warmups. Well, I had my guys out there and we were we were doing calisthenics and we were running sprints and we were getting ourselves loose. And Alabama is not on the field. And I'm thinking, what's what's wrong with this picture? I mean, why didn't Coach, Coach Bryant hadn't even walked out? And, of course, I was waiting for that because I knew I was supposed to go down and shake his hand and, and show respect, which I certainly had plenty of respect. And they're not even out there. So I go to our trainer, Bill McDonald, who happens to be an Alabama guy, and I said, Alabama's not even stretching. He said, oh, they're stretching. I said, what do you mean? He said, they're under the stands. They're back there in the back in the cool. Oh, <laughs> Bryant has coach Bryant has whipped us and we hadn't even, he hadn't even run on the field yet. The game, I mean, the game, they, our endurance, I had sapped our guys, worn them out in warmups. That's how stupid you can be when you think you're going to be a honcho head coach. And then when he finally did take the field, he came down and, treated me very nicely and intimidated the daylights out of me. <laughs> and then they, they beat us 26 to three. It could have been a hundred to three. And they, they were, he was kind to us. Well, again, you, you had an outstanding career, Georgia Tech, Alabama, Kentucky as well. 
And then another transition in your life is you decide to, to go into broadcasting. What, what led to, to that transition for you? And obviously it's one that uh, was beneficial for you once again. You started in 1997 with ESPN. Well, I loved working for ESPN and they were wonderful to me, to us. Um, um, I had a, a, an agent, an attorney at the time named Robert Fraley, who, who was an Alabama quarterback for Coach Bryant, but who had was absolutely brilliant and went on to represent Bill Parcells and um, Joe Gibbs and Bill Cower and others. Um, and I, I had the privilege of having Robert as my representative. He died tragically in a plane crash with Payne Stewart hmm. years later. But Robert immediately jumped on the idea of uh, being on the air. I had worked as a sportscaster in Atlanta in the early seventies, um, in the off season. That was, that was my off season job. We all had off season jobs. So I had a little experience on camera and then uh, I just went for an audition and, um, I had the privilege of signing with ESPN. And then in the first meeting of all of the staff and all the people, Lee Corso took about half of his day and just went over and over and over things that I needed to know. And I'll always remember that. So ESPN was wonderful for us. And uh, I'm especially uh, indebted to Lee Corso. And, and then when they put Golick in there uh, with us and Michelle Tafoya and Dave Barnett, uh, that was just a great joy working with that bunch. Um, always indebted to, and, and there's so many more that I'm not mentioning. Uh, Kirk Herb Street was wonderful and a lot of others. Yeah, and again, 1997 to 2007, you know, what was it about broadcasting? What attracted you to that? Because obviously, again, you did it for, for a long time. Well, I love football with all its ugliness and flaws uh, and the fact that I hated it when I was 12 years old. I learned that if you do your job, you know, worst, I thought the very worst thing that could happen is that they made me hike the ball. Well, that's exactly what they did. Uh, but hiking the ball ended up with me hiking the ball to Billy Lothridge, Stanley Gann, Joe Namath, Roger Staubach, Greg Morton, John Hewitt, Bart Starr, Zeke Bratkowski, Johnny Unitas, Daryl LaMonica, Joe, uh, um, um, Bob Greasy, um, James Harris, uh, the greatest players and leaders in the, in the, era that I lived, I had the privilege of being in the huddle, transmitting the ball to them and then protecting them in various games on various teams. And as it turns out, offensive center is the only position in all of sport that would have allowed me to have a career with my uh, physical characteristics. So that which appeared to be the worst thing ended up being the best thing. And that's what happens in life. And that's what can happen in football, like being in the booth with Golick. That was just beautiful. That was to be in in his presence. He's so smart and he's so much fun and he's so unselfish. Um, and we we did develop a mutual admiration society. That's amazing. Like you said, a sport that you never wanted to play, it became and opened up so many doors for you throughout your career. And and another door opened up late in your career to to be a head coach again in two thousand and eight. You signed on to start the football program at Georgia State uh, from the ground up. You know, what attracted you to that and to get back into coaching at that time in your career? 
I got to give Golick's greatest line before before we see leave the subject of Mike Golick. <clears throat> I said, "Okay, Golick," because we were always jabbing each other uh, verbally. I said, uh, "You played on a line with Reggie White, is that right?" He said, "Yeah, me and Reggie together, we had 120 sacks." I said, "Man, that is incredible. How many did Reggie have?" He said, "111." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, an, an, a seldom mentioned factor, in factoid. In yeah, he, he said he claims he cleared the way for Reggie to get those sacks. I don't know. I don't know about that. We need to go get the films out. There but you go. There you go. Ask me about Georgia State. Uh, I'm married to this wonderful scholar who's just about to publish her second book, which is, believe it or not, a murder mystery set in the world of football, <laughs> uh, where she articulates brilliantly um, ideas about the things that she really believes in spouse abuse, gambling in sports, alcohol abuse, um, unsavory types that sometimes attach themselves to programs. She uses her, her uh, skill as a historian to write this book called sudden death. It'll be out August 2nd, Dr. Carolyn Newton Curry. But um, she wanted to finish her education. And so our kids, when they got school age, she had already gotten her undergraduate degree. And I had agreed, sure, you, you should finish your education. I didn't know she meant to earn every degree in Western civilization, but she did. And so to get her master's, she was so sensitive to being home with the children, she, she would not take courses until, she, until the kids got school age. We had two, Kristen, uh, and our, our daughter is, three years older than Bill Jr., our son. And um, when they were little, uh, people would say, well, Carolyn, you're back in school at Georgia State. What are you majoring in? She'd say, 1040. Well, what does that mean, 1040? She said, what that means is this. I can take the kids to school, drive to downtown Atlanta, and whatever the history department's offering at 1040 a.m., that's what I take. And she did that for 14 years never made a B, became the outstanding student in the history department, earned her master's and her PhD. So when Georgia State came along and said, hey, we want to we want to play football. And, they, and Georgia State had always said, we'll never play football. Well, here we are with 53,000 students now, downtown Atlanta. Georgia State has saved downtown Atlanta, flat out, not even an argument. Bought buildings, restructured them, refurbished them, made them into classrooms and labs and such. And it's a beautiful accomplishment. So Atlanta's deeply indebted to Georgia State, and so are the Currys, because Carolyn could not have finished her education any other way. So when Georgia State called, and I thought she would say, oh, no way, we're not going back to coaching. But she said, wait a minute, let me think here now. I don't have to move. We've moved 34 times. <laughs> I don't have to move. It's my school. Let's do it. And so that's how the decision was made. And we did it with all our hearts. And we were delighted to uh, bring a lot of wonderful young people to Georgia State. Virtually all of them have graduated, and now Georgia State has a, a good football program and a wonderful stadium. We got lucky with the Braves moving out, and Georgia State took over, and that, that is a fabulous facility now. And um, Georgia State graduates more minority 
students than any other school in America other than the historically black colleges and universities. Yeah, it's, it's a big campus, as you said, spread out throughout downtown. Uh, again, you're hired in 2008. You don't coach for the first time until 2010. What was that like, you know, starting that program again from scratch and, and, and putting all the pieces in place to be able to take the field in 2010? Well, it's fun to think about it now, but we didn't have a football. I mean, we, we at the press we said, okay, we're going to have a press conference. Somebody said, well, get a football. We don't have one. We didn't have a helmet. We didn't have a chin strap. We didn't have an office. We didn't have a telephone. We didn't have a player, and we didn't have a coach. I mean, we had one coach. <laughs> what I remember most is we'd, we went ahead and had the press conference and announced we were going to play football. Somebody had run to a sporting goods store and get a ball so I could hold one up to remind everybody, this is a football. Am I going too fast for you? But a guy, a guy grabbed me as I was walking away from the, from the microphone, I swear. And he said, when are we going to play the dogs, Curry? <laughs> I said, it'll be a while. Yeah, again, it was a while, 2010, coached there for, for three years, uh, and, and then retire again. So since that point, I know you're doing some some speaking, different things. What else are you doing and, and enjoying in your life other than spending a lot of time with your, as you said, with your, your wife about to uh, enjoy 60 years of, uh, of wedded bliss? Yeah, wedded bliss is what I would call it. I'm, I don't think she would call it that, and we're not going to ask her right now. That's right. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm going to um, – accompany her. Uh, the book, not surprisingly, is called Sudden Death. And uh, I, I told her a coach is shot on the sideline in the opening chapter. I said, hey, sweetheart, you just killed me in the first chapter. <laughs> she said, oh, no. Oh, no, darling. She was totally sincere. She said, this guy is tall, dark, handsome, and really smart. He couldn't possibly be you. <laughs> I said, thanks a lot. But it's a really good book, and um, she had some great editors that were hard on her, and she didn't, she wasn't real happy about that. But she did what they said, and and anybody that picks it up, that's the least bit interested in our cultural, um, the things that really matter in our culture for women, I think that's the real reason she decided to do that. Normally, if she writes a book, it's about history because that's her that's her uh, area of interest. Well, again, you, you spent so much time, a lifetime around football. You were honored in 2007, the Amos Alonzo Stag Award uh, for your contributions. What did an award like that mean to you? And, and maybe tell you about your place, you know, in, in, in football, but, but in society as well. Well, I was blown away. I, uh, I get emotional just thinking about it. For for the guys, the American Football Coaches Association, to feel that way and to um, uh, present that honor uh, is more than one could ever expect. And uh, to earn the respect of your colleagues and your former players um, is one of the goals that every coach has and every coach who loves his players, does the best he can or the best she can to do that. So that honor was very significant to the Currys. 
again, you've had such great coaches in your career. How, how much do you kind of go and, and help out other coaches now? And, and maybe not just, you know, football, but other coaches as well that, that maybe look for you for, for some guidance as you once did with Bobby Dodd and some of the other coaches as well. A good bit. Uh, surprise, I'm surprised because they contact me and either they um, allow me to come and speak to their team and that, that's happening less and less, but I mean, that's okay. I don't need to be running around the country the way I used to, but, um, or we'll set up a, a zoom and we'll talk by phone. Uh, one of the good things that happened during the pandemic was that zoom became such a factor. Uh, not only are we doing this today, but, uh, there were high school teachers and coaches that had me talk to their classrooms with the zoom. And I've done that quite a bit. And, and, which stimulates me and it makes me think to try to come up to date with the things that young people are dealing with. They're dealing with things that we didn't even think about. We, I mean, we never thought about mass murder. Uh, we never thought about a, a pandemic. We never, we never had to think about stuff like that. Today's young people are forced to think about very difficult matters and we should be helping them, uh, every way we can. So I get that privilege periodically. Um, and I'm, I'm going down to Texas to Robinson uh, High School area for a, a wonderful coach named Lonnie Judd uh, later this month and get to speak with all his coaches and spend an hour with them. And, and I, what I do is share the wisdom of these great uh, people who worked with me. And so it, it's a privilege. I also um, work as a fundraiser for uh, what's called Breakthrough House. That's a place that, that uh, takes in women who are suffering from the results of addiction or imprisonment or homelessness or all the above and, and bring in their children as well. And we're doing a, a major capital campaign now and I'm, I'm helping to, to raise that money. So there are a lot of good things for us to be doing. And we try, Carol and I both try to do our best. Well, you're certainly doing your best, and I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us and the, the insight that you have provided. Certainly, I can see why you were a successful uh, football coach all those years, Coach, and uh, enjoyed our, our conversation here, and uh, I'm glad that Mike Gullick brought you up in our discussion with him a couple of weeks ago because, uh, again, you guys, as you said, you worked well so, so well together watching those games years ago. Uh, but to have a chance to talk to you is a, a tremendous honor for me. And I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us here today. Well, it's my honor. And uh, thank you guys. Uh, and I'm glad we got the technical glitches worked out. Well, great stuff there from Bill Curry. He has been teammates with some of the best in the NFL. Also some great coaches for him. Great insight from Bill Curry, our guest here today. As always, we remind you, be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Great guests coming up. You do not want to miss any of those. You'll be notified with some push notifications with that as well. Subscribe. It is free to our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us here today. We'll see you next week for another edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.